Hey listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I find the monarchy fascinating, but I am most definitely not a monarchist. I also touch on political movements, gender politics, and much more. And I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and C-grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support and say hello, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Hello, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria. My pronouns are she, her. And today is a special festive episode where I sit down with the writer of the 13th century romance, Silence, a story of a girl who was raised to become a male knight. Yes, I'm talking about the one and only Heldress of Cornwall. Yay! I thought it would be a fun idea to get some perspective of what Christmas was like in the Middle Ages and go into a bit more detail about just the general history of the holiday itself. Personally speaking, I am not, Christmas is not my favorite holiday. My favorite holiday is definitely Halloween and um, I like candy and I'm a spooky girl, but I'm conflicted because I do really like winter and I love good Christmas decor. And I believe winter is a time for, like, renewal and rebirth. And, uh, you know, but in American society, it's really just work till you drop and spend, spend, spend. And, uh, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I just, you know, I feel like it goes against our nature to be, I don't know, working extra hard during the winter season, especially when our bodies just want to be at rest. So Christmas is definitely not my favorite. There are aspects and traits of it that I do appreciate, but ultimately I just don't really like what it's become. And, but, you know, it has a, I have a soft spot for it. I'm born four days before Christmas. And so my birthday was always aligned with the holiday. So whether I want to, uh, whether I want to acknowledge it or not, it definitely is a part of me and a part of my history. Before I go further into detail, allow me to introduce to you Heldress of Cornwall, who is here to chat with us about some of the traditions of the medieval world and to really give us some insight into what life was like come winter in medieval times. Heldress, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and talking about what the holiday season was like in medieval times. Welcome! I'm pleased to be here, my lady, despite what wicked things you may have said regarding the triumphant tale of silence becoming the lady she was intended to be, and comparing me to a nobleman who referred to you as a uh, meltdown Gibson. 
I thought to myself, Heldress, you must speaketh your truth, and show the world the wisdom that you behold in, and that decision has led me here to this platform of yours to discuss the wonders of winter from my hometown. So, Heldress, you mentioned your hometown, which is super cool. Uh, it sounds like you're really proud of it. Where exactly is your hometown? Like, modern scholars are not too sure where you lived, or even if your name is Heldress. My home is a land that meets the sea, which is gray to match the sky above. And there are fields of green spread far and wide. It's cold in my hometown. There's nothing more than a whisper of the willow, far from any kingdom. Well, that sounds lovely. Is your name truly Heldris, and is this land you speak of perhaps Cornwall? Or did you actually take that from Arthurian legend? Is your whole, whole spiel from an Arthurian legend? It is the only name I acknowledge, my lady, and the only one I will share with this audience. Well, that's fair. You know, I really like the pseudonym Heldris anyway. It gives a real air of mystery, and it sounds so Arthuriana. I, I kind of love it. So here is how this episode's going to go. Uh, I'm going to tell the audience a bit about the history of Christmas, um, like the really early middle age kind of version of Christmas, and then like a little bit predating the middle, the middle ages, which I think would actually make it the dark ages. I'm, I'm really terrible with timelines. And then once we get to the actual middle ages, so like 12th, 13th century, then I'm going to start asking you some questions and you can tell us more about what Christmas was like in your own lifetime. Are you good with this approach? A good woman is silent. All right, that's enough of that. Now I'm going to talk even more than I was planning to talk. Enjoy. Christmas is an annual holiday that celebrates the birth of Jesus, and it's celebrated by a ton of people across the globe. It is celebrated on December 25th, which would make Jesus a Capricorn, if he was in fact born on that date. The date of his birth is a hotly contested topic. There is no historical record of Jesus' birthday, and some people have argued that due to the planetary alignment of his birth, that he may have been born during the summer, like late summer, and not in the winter. However, in the 4th century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was Pope Julius I who settled on December 25th. Now, I only did minimal digging on this guy because one source I read was like, we don't know why Julius settled on December 25th. Only he knows. This is sort of true. We don't know why he did. However, uh, the source saying that Pope Julius said it was December 25th is based on a letter quoted only, in, uh, only by a 9th century source, so about 500 years after he lived. Pretty suspicious. There is one source that claims that Pope Julius declared December 25th as Christmas after a guy named uh, Cyril of Jerusalem asked for clarification on the date uh, historical records stored in Rome indicate as Jesus' birth. 
So in other words, I think he was just checking to see if they had a record of Jesus's birth, you know, maybe because you know Rome killed Jesus. It is believed that this date was selected because it is two days after the end of the Roman festival, Saturnalia. So Pope Julius may have just quoted that as being the day, not because he believed it was in fact the birth of Jesus, but because a new Christian holiday would be a fair replacement for the old pagan one. I should also add there have been other studies uh, trying to figure out the actual date of Jesus's birth uh, using sheep migration. So I guess like what kind of sheep were like local to the area at the time of Jesus's life and how they would have migrated and what season they would have migrated. And so some people, based on that, it still kind of falls under the summer, late summer, early autumn time period. But this is all speculation. Speculation and theories. Oh, one more reason or a couple of reasons as to why Julius may have selected December 25th. In 274 AD, Roman Emperor Aurelian gave the 25th of December as the birth date of Sol Invictus, who was uh, a sun god of Rome, or quite possibly the sun god of the Mediterranean. Like, I was a little uncertain on the reading there, but maybe he's both? I don't know. Anyway, it's quite possible that by choosing this date, Julius believed he could attract more converts to Christianity by allowing them to continue to celebrate on that same day. So I guess going back on my original statement, we don't know why Julius picked this date for certain, but there is quite a bit of valid evidence why he chose it, like to cover up paganism, or I should say to convert pagans to the new religion. And some people might argue that that's not the case. I think we don't 100% know the case, but like we also know the case, if you know what I mean. Like, obviously there was a pattern here. Third century historian Sextus Julius Africanus stated that Jesus was conceived on the spring equinox of March the 25th, thus implying that Jesus was in fact born in December. There is also the popular theory of the time that Jesus was uh, crucified in the spring and the, uh, your death back then was oftentimes associated with your moment of conception. So that could have also added to the fact that they thought he was conceived in spring, born in December, is a Capricorn. Early Christians, which to my understanding of early Christianity, it was pretty pagan. Uh, I mean, there are still definitely pagan rituals within Christianity, Catholicism. They don't want to admit that, but there absolutely is. Um, but early Christians uh, tied Jesus with the sun. And so kind of like Sol Invictus, like invoking that sun god theory and would refer to him as the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. Saturnalia was celebrated from December 17th to December 23rd, and it does have some Christmas vibes, except it typically, well, not typically, it began with a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn. Now, I didn't know, I couldn't find what kind of sacrifice was made uh, during Saturnalia, um, I, so I don't know if it was a human sacrifice or not, but I did see a reference to a suckling piglet, so... That could have been what was sacrificed, but I don't think that, I don't think that was a big enough deal for, to start a festival. So it was probably a person. 
This would be followed with banquets and gift-giving. Families who enslaved people would provide sustenance and table-setting for the people they enslaved. Does this redeem them for being enslavers? <laughs> no, not at all. Like, ancient Rome was fucked. Anyway, a common custom of that time was to elect someone who would be known as the king of Saturnalia. The poet Catullus described it as the best of days. The term Christmas first became part of the English language in the 11th century, and it's from the old English expression Christis Ma Masse? I think I'm saying that right? Probably totally not, meaning Festival of Christ. The abbreviation of Christmas, Xmas, the X stands for the Greek letter Chi, C-H-I, which was the early abbreviation of Christ, or the Greek Christos. The X is also a symbol for the cross. Christmas had other names prior to its current one. The Anglo-Saxons referred to the feast as Midwinter, or Nativity, and Old English referred to it as Yule. Okay, admittedly, I'm very confused about this. Um, so simply because uh, some, of my, some of my research stated that Christmas was celebrated prior to the 11th century. For example, the first recorded Christmas was in Rome, of all places, in the 3rd century. I don't have anything nice to say about that, so I won't. But what exactly did Rome call Christmas? Uh, was it nativity? Is that when nativity was introduced? into the language like i'm a little bit confused on the earliest language of the christmas time or of, of christmas itself so if anyone knows holler at me after the first celebration so this maybe is why there's a little bit confusion because after the first celebration something i can only describe as bananas happened where two christian theologians from Alexandria, Egypt, were in this like big Christian debate, and Christmas was and Christmas played a role in that debate. From the point of those debates, the holiday went into a decline. Uh, it's another thing looking into that I did not have time to look into uh, because it seemed very complicated and a lot of like, you know, early Christian theologian theories that I really could not wrap my brain around. Uh, but definitely something to look into in the future. So this brings us to the Middle Ages, and I'm going to talk very briefly about this one dude who some people refer to as the father of Europe, and is probably Heldris's favorite medieval dude ever, Charlemagne. So I'm just going to give you a couple of footnotes about Charlemagne here. Uh, I don't like the guy, but here we go. Charlemagne was king of the Franks, king of the Lombards, and emperor of the Romans. Born April 2nd in 747 and died in January of 814. He is responsible for uniting most of Western and Central Europe and was the first emperor of the Romans after the fall 300 years prior. Now, a lot of people praise Charlemagne for uniting Europe and, you know, especially under one religion and that religion being Christianity and how it did everybody great service and blah 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 great war leader blah blah but if you ask me I pretty much think Charlemagne's reign was like kind of the beginning of the end of Europe or I guess maybe not really the end of Europe but how do I want to say this I guess 
the impact that he had on Europe could be its own generation, like its own generational trauma, like the shit he did to people. And I'll get into that. Charlemagne terrorized the Saxons in the Saxon Wars, in which he enforced the legal code Capitulatio de Partibus Saxonae, which means Ordinances Concerning Saxony. One of these ordinances was that he should impose Christianity upon them, or else face the penalty of death. Or else they will face the penalty of death. There we go. This move led to something called the Massacre of Verdun. Charlemagne, or what we should call him, Charlemagne, ordered the deaths of 4,500 Saxons in October of 782. Now, it didn't specify whether this was just male Saxons, not that it would make it any better, um, but it didn't specify, you know, if these were just adults that he murdered. Uh, I assume, because it's pretty vague, that it was like men, women, and children, and everyone, everyone else. Charlemagne also managed to destroy the, um, I believe it is referred to as Irmensul, which was a sacred pillar-like object that was very important to Germanic paganism. Sacred trees and sacred groves were widely respected and worshipped by Germanic paganism, and the oldest chronicle describing an Irmensul refers to it as a tree trunk erected in open air. After the Irmensul was destroyed, a church was built in its place. Now, I'm not saying that paganism did not have its flaws and was not problematic in itself, but I do think, and this is just a theory, so nobody get mad at me, that I guess white, how do I say this? Let's see, without hurting anyone's feelings. I don't think I can say it without being offensive. It is my belief that Europeans lost that divine spiritual connection to the land they lived on when Christianity came into the scene. When they lost their ties with paganism entirely and accepted this new religion, I think that's when they lost it. And this is just one example of the enforced violence of conversion uh, that led to them losing a sense of identity with the earth. So I know what you're thinking. After such a horrible massacre, how on earth did people, like, jizz over the thought of Charlemagne? Well, there's a lot to that. Following this event, a lot of historians throughout time have tried to downplay this massacre. In the late 19th century, there were many efforts to exon exonerate Charlemagne by suggesting this didn't really happen, and... It was simply an error in translation, or uh, the number wasn't 4,500. It was a lot less than that. So modern scholars today say that there was not an error, like this actually happened. This massacre was of particular concern to the Nazi party, and early Nazi regimes, i.e. German nationalists, uh, investigated the massacre, trying to find a way to redeem Charlemagne. In 1942, Hitler and a man named Paul Joseph Goebbels, who, don't Google him, guys, because he is a real scary Skeletor-looking motherfucker. Like, he looked like that skinny orc in Lord of the Rings, or one of the skinny orcs where they just have that, like, 
disgusting bald face. Like, he's hideous. Anyway, those two men were like, oh my gosh, we need to rehabilitate Charlemagne, and thus celebrated the 1200th birthday of Charlemagne, declaring it his official rehabilitation. It gets grosser. Prepare yourselves. Goebbels' opinion was that it was best for state propaganda on historical matters to align with popular opinion, and thus with and not against Charlemagne. So people were already like, oh my god, Charlemagne is the best. And they were like, yeah, he is. This guy is the bee's knees and the father of Europe. And I'm just like, oh my god, what the fuck are y'all telling yourselves? This guy's fucking sucked. An example of Charlemagne's post-rehabilitation in Nazi Germany. In 1944, the 33rd Waffen-Grandier Division of the SSS Charlemagne, a body of French volunteers, was named after the pan-European Germanic hero, instead of after Joan of Arc. Now you might be sitting there wondering, oh my gosh, why are we talking about this horrible human being? What does he have to do with Christmas? Well, at the height of his power in 800, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day at Old St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I should add real quick here that there was some drama about whether it was Charlemagne's intention to be made emperor on Christmas or if it was actually Pope Leo who had his own agenda. Charlemagne tried to say he didn't have, it wasn't his choice to be emperor on Christmas, but I don't fucking believe him. Like, listen, listen, I don't believe you. And I think he knew damn well what was happening and, you know, because when he went to the church to pray, there was a a crown waiting for him at the altar. Like, come on, dude. This started a tradition of kings of Europe being crowned, or well, I should say, having their coronations on Christmas Day. Since literally everyone had a boner for Charlemagne, they all wanted to be like him. So there is my brief, albeit horrific, history of early Christmas. Now I'm going to hand the mic over to Heldris, who is going to discuss William the Conqueror's coronation and tell us a bit about medieval Christmas traditions. So what do you think, Heldris? Do you have anything to add to that early Christmas history? Milady, you have the wrong idea about our good Christian King Charlemagne. He liberated the heathens by commanding them to worship Christ and thus worship his rule. He meant uh, to save their souls, yes, from their own wickedness and bring Christian order to the land around us. He had to destroy that connection they had with the land so he could open their eyes to what really matters. Christian order, servitude and glory to the holiest of crowns. Every man should model themselves in his divinity and chivalry, for he was a wise, brave ruler, truly a marvel amongst the clerics and historians that I know. Oh, you mean the, all the male clerics who said terrible things about women? and praise badly behaved men. Oh, and the historians that say Richard I was a heterosexual? What? Men of the cloth, you mean. 
men of divinity, they are as observant and wise as owls. You know, the owl didn't exist before clerics did. They say the owl was inspired by the clerics and thus became one with the Lord. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that last bit is not true at all. Uh, so I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on both the subject of owls and Charlemagne. Because, yeah, th that conversation's not going to go anywhere. So why don't you tell us all about, like, let's transition to the coronation of William the Conqueror. 1066 was truly a wild year. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes, my lady, a wild year indeed. "'Twas after the Battle of Hastings, where dear William, who was then the Duke of Normandy, led an army on October 14th, 1066, to defeat the Anglo-Saxon Harold Godwinson, thus leading to the Norman conquest of Angleterre. They say Harold's mother, a lady called Githa, requested her son's body be returned to her, and offered William his weight in gold to have it returned. But our dear William dismissed this request, and thus the pretender was tossed in the sea. There was some tension and resistance when William had entered Angleterre, but he had squashed any squabble along the way with the pillage here and there. Fire solves a lot of skirmishes, my lady. He made his way into London and commanded that they build him a castle. He wasted no time in his coronation. William wanted to be crowned king as soon as possible. The coronation took place on Christmas Day of 1066. One could feel the icy breath of the Thames rise and swallow, the land in a mist of white. The event, of course, was held at Westminster Abbey, which, as you well know, was built by the mystical saintly wonder Edward the Confessor, who took a peasant's dream and made it into a reality. During the coronation, as the people inside the abbey shouted their acceptance of William, the troops outside thought a fire had broken out and that our brave William had been attacked. The troops set fire to Saxon houses. You see, the Norman soldiers could not for the life of them understand the bizarre language of the Saxons and vice versa. So, all that was just a communication error, but still William became king and the Saxons well. Some didn't have homes, but it is what it is. A fair sacrifice to have such a godly, good king as William. Wow, that is a whole lot of crazy. You know, I actually don't know a whole lot about William. Like, his history is very heavy on the military side, and there's a whole lot of Norman shenanigans within his family line, and it's my, you know, my ADHD brain really just zones out when it comes to battles, especially, uh, but I should really try to commit to understanding 
what exactly went down in 1066 because he wasn't the only event of that year. Like there was quite a bit of other shenanigans. Like I've heard it mentioned in other instances that I'm totally just basing on. So a truly uneventful year, but like, what the fuck about that coronation? Like, happy Christmas. I'm your new king. And sorry, not sorry. I set your house on fire. You should study extensively the great William the Conqueror, but don't tell anyone about it. A good woman is... Yo, 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 stop talking. You keep up with this misogyny, and I'm going to make you watch the Netflix documentary, Feminists, What Were They Thinking? Which, by the way, everyone, is a very good documentary, and everyone should watch it. But I swear to God, Heldris, any more shenanigans... Any more shenanigans, any more misogyny, any more anti-Semitism, anything that makes you an awful person, I'm giving you one more chance or I'm going to staple your eyelids to your forehead and I'm going to make you watch it on repeat. No, 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 please, my lady. I'll be goodly and please don't inflict that upon my Christian male eyes. I will keep thy shade as stifled as my sexuality. Okay then, glad we see eye to eye on something. So, it sounds like William wasn't a very kind king, but the English regard him as some kind of marvel, like right up there with like Arthurian level amazeballs. So, any thoughts on that? Ah uh, yes, well, the English as you know love to be winners. They see themselves as champions and masters of their own paths. With a name like William the Conqueror, they felt it important to align themselves with the Conqueror rather than be seen as the Conquered. Well, that is a lot to unpack, man. Uh, Pac-Man. Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Uh, let's move away from scary white men and discuss some Christmas traditions. You have read my mind, my lady. Doth be a witch in my presence. Let me tell you everything. Oh, but that witch, that witch was not a slur. Just letting you know, don't make me watch that feminist documentary, please. Before we partook in Christmas feast, we would endure Advent. Advent is a 40-day period of fasting and piety. We also called it 40 Days of St. Martin, as we began on the 11th of November, which is his feast day, as you know. We do not consume meat, milk, or eggs, and this was incredibly difficult, as we needed to begin preparation for the Feast of Christmas weeks prior to the actual event. Can you imagine subsiding on turnips, watered-down ale, and a crust of bread, while having to tenderize and pickle the most succulent of boars' heads? You'd go mad, and some of us did. Advent was a time of preparation for God's coming. His advent is into the world, both in the infant Jesus and at the end of time, at the apocalypse, which could happen any minute now, you never know. It is a time of self-exile, desire, 
learning, and repentance. Oh my, sounds like all the phases I've gone through during this pandemic. So tell us a bit more. It was custom for us to resist temptation in all forms. There is one instance of Pope Urban V, a great man indeed, in 1362, that allowed his court to consume all edible delights, but to lay with one another, he forbid it. There was to be absolutely no intimate physical connection between anybody. The last day of Advent was Christmas Eve, and each day after that until Epiphany became more and more grand. Epiphany took place on the 6th of January. T'was the celebration of the visit from the three kings to the infant Jesus, when they brought forth to the young king gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This season became known as Christmas Tide, or the Twelve Days of Christmas. Oh my goodness, sounds like it was definitely something that took up the entire season, or at least a significant part of two, like the late fall and early winter. That's so cool. Did people of all classes take time off during the season, or were the lower classes, like, not permitted to take any time off? Because nowadays, like... People that work in the service industry, they don't take time off. It's the busiest season. But the wealthier folks, well, they can visit family, they can work from home, and, you know, sometimes they go on vacation. They'll go to the mountains or the beach. So I'm just wondering what, uh, was everyone able to take time off during the Middle Ages, or was it, like, only the rich and the poor have to work? Or only the rich get time off and the poor have to work? Quite a lot of people took time away from their day-to-day to partake in the festivities. It varied, of course, from region to region, but typically the peasants were allowed to rest come the new year, so long as they tended to the land and took special care of the winter crops. The winter was a slow time for agricultural work, Therefore, they got to rest them before the next month. The Day of Reversal of Fortunes, now known as Boxing Day, was a time when the wealthy provided gifts for the poor. This was generally money, which was provided in hollow clay pot with a slit on the top, and then you would break the pot and money would come out. This is when the phrase, I think you call it, piggy bank, was created. Christmas was also known as quarter day, in which people, well, poor people's, rent was due. Thus, the peasant typically had a period of rest, but had to pay to live. So, let me see if I understand this. So, the reversal of fortunes, the known as Boxing Day, that comes after Christmas, right? So, when rich people give poor people some money, really they're just giving back some of their rent that they took the day before, right? Like, wouldn't the more charitable thing be, hey, it's Christmas time, so you don't have to pay rent. Party on.
lady, please, one must know their place and work for permission to exist in Christendom. It is the only way, and not the fault of the wealthy for having the means. Everyone serves a purpose, but it is important not to forget one's place. Why don't you tell me about the food at Christmas Tide? What was your favorite dish? Oh my goodness, it is impossible for me to pinpoint my favorite. Even if you asked me my top three favorites, I just couldn't tell you because everything was so splendid. I do remember quite fondly, for those who could afford it, a pig's head was the centerpiece of the Christmas feast. A boar was a desired target to the elite, as they are very difficult to catch and kill. Only the wealthy had means and access to boar hunting. Can you imagine a peasant with a bow going after a creature more grand than themselves? Piffle-paffle! As stated earlier, some would go mad at the divine smell of a cooked pig, and yours truly was at a loss for words the first time I took a bite of that succulent flesh. Permission to tell you a brief Arthurian tale of the great boar, Turk to with? Yeah, of course. Please do. I was told this story as a young child by my grandfather, Wolfnoth. He was a Welshman, but don't hold that against him, and a writer who drew inspiration from the sea itself. This is the story of a man called Kirhuk, and it may be one of the earliest stories of our great King Arthur. Kilhook faces many trials in order to win the hand of Elwyn, the beautiful daughter of the chief of giants. Kilhook obtains help from Arthur, but Elwyn's father requests that if he is serious about marrying into the family, he must obtain a razor, comb, and scissors with which the giant could groom himself for the wedding feast. The difficulty being that they adorn the head of a monstrous boar named Turk Tewith, who was actually a prince magically cursed to take the shape of the beast. This began an epic chase that took Kilhook all over Celtic Britain, and he faced many obstacles. The time came to face Turk Tewith who was driven into a river by a hunter called Nathan. He managed to snatch the razor and scissors, but the boar nearly killed the both of them. Oh, but not before the comb was finally retrieved. The beast, embarrassed, fled into the sea and was never seen again. So you see, the boar at Christmas died, is meant to represent Turk to with. Oh my gosh, that is like so cool. I don't think I've ever heard of that story before. And I had no idea that the boar's head at Christmas was tied to Arthuriana, but I'm definitely not surprised. I did, however, Google the name of the boar 
and it is a character in the story of uh, Kilhuk Ak Alwin. So thank you for sharing that, and I, I just love the idea of a boar living in the sea. You are quite welcome, my lady. For those who could not afford boar, did not go hungry, oh no no. Geese was common, as was venison, partridges, cheese, rabbits, and minced pies. No pies were enjoyed by everyone. Pies contain all sorts of contents. Apples, pears, beef, lamb, eggs, bone marrow, and yes, more cheese. The contents were often entirely cooked or near ready before being warmed in the pastry oven, before being served, of course. It did not entirely matter if the pastry itself wasn't cooked through, as it was rarely consumed, just the delectable contents. There was a peasant version of minced pie called Umble Pie, this would contain the organ meats of the beasts the wealthy elite did not wish to consume. It would be prepared with various spices, and yes, some more cheese, and the peasants just loved humble pie, couldn't get enough of it. One Christmas I was invited to the court of a noble duke on the Isle of Man, and he had prepared a special feast for all of us. A maiden with a face and demeanor as sweet as honey presented us with a large peacock. I shall never forget the abundant feathers, many shades of teal and green, like the oceans of heaven. The cooks were very skilled, you see, in presenting such a beautiful dish. The skin of the creature was carefully removed and set aside. The carcass was then skewered for roasting, its neck being fixed upright during the roast to allow for a lifelike presentation at service. I learned this by sneaking into the kitchens when the goodly hunters brought forth the lively bird in a gilded cage to be butchered for the season. I believe the bird was honored in its sacrifice for the feast of Christ, and there is no doubt in my mind that it shall live on in heaven. Christmas was also a time for charity and sharing. In 1314, some tenants at North Korea in Somerset received loaves of bread, beef, and bacon with mustard, chicken soup, cheese, and as much beer as they could drink for the day. Gifts of food were sometimes enforced for the right to keep rabbits. The town of La Gras had to give their best bunny to the local monastery each Christmas. Wine and ale were consumed in massive quantities. Ale for the poor and very fine decadent wine for the wealthy. In 1296, between 84 and 120 bottles of wine were consumed on Christmas Day at Goodrich Castle. The wine was believed to be a spiced sweet wine of reds and whites.
All of that sounds super yummy, especially the spiced wine. I don't think I've ever had a spiced wine before. I mean, I've definitely had ales and I've had sweet wines and I really love champagne, but something tells me the Middle Ages had some pretty good wine. Did you, you know, did you guys also enjoy like singing, caroling and dancing? What kind of gifts did you give one another? For a brief time, gift-giving was banned by the church, as it has pagan origins. You had briefly touched earlier on Saturnalia, in which gift-giving was a tradition amongst the pagans. However, as Christmas festivities grew more and more, the church eased up on restrictions and allowed gifting. One year, I received soaps of myrrh from the Holy Land, and I smelled like the infant Christ for a whole year. Other gifts might include barrels of wine, food, spices, tapestry, silks, and candles. Everyone enjoyed dancing at the feast and breaking out into a jolly song once the owl began to make the walls twist and turn, but caroling was also initially banned by the church. Many carolers took the word carol literally, which is to sing and dance in a circle, which meant that the more serious Christmas masses were being ruined, and so the church decided to send the carol singers outside. Mm, I would have loved to see what Christmas was like in the Middle Ages. I don't think I could eat a boar's head, even though I do really love bacon. And I do love barbacoa, so I don't know, maybe I can get down with a boar's head. Uh, I don't know if I'd be down to eat peacock either. I mean, I really like peacocks, so I don't know, I'm conflicted. Uh, but I definitely would be, would be down to eat some geese and drink some of that spiced wine. That sounds bomb. Sounds like a fine winter meal if you ask me. I kind of wish Christmas was a two-week event in the U.S., but it's just a one-day deal and some people don't even get that. Indeed, I believe it is a travesty that the holiday is not celebrated as it once was in the time of yore. People of your time may say those who lived in the Middle Ages were of less intelligence and were dirty, but my generation would not have said no to protection from plague, nor would they think our Lord and Savior deserves only one day of celebration. You know, you make some interesting points, Eldris. For the record, I do not think people in the Middle Ages were stupid. And after over about a year of researching this period, I know for certain that they were anything but. I do believe that the church control and the control from the greedy rich uh, definitely held back a lot of free thinking and progressive thought and individuality. And because of that, we lost a lot of identity and voice of medieval people. So no, I don't think they were stupid. Uh, medieval people may not have had access to information and education, but like, but people today, well, education and information is more accessible, but people choose not to, t not to partake, not to learn. So who's actually the dumb one here? 
Anyway, I want to thank you so much for coming on my podcast to discuss the history of Christmas. It was exciting to hear a bit more about your past and to learn about the boar who was a prince. I'm not going to say the name again because Welsh is bananas and I had to say that name multiple times and woo, it's a mouthful. Um, but I'd never heard that story or understood the connection between Boar's Head and Christmas. So you definitely brought up a lot of new information and I learned a lot from your past. So thank you so much and I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I thank my lady for having me. It was my utmost pleasure. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode on the history of Christmas. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break from my podcast and won't be returning until about uh, mid-February to late February. And you know, I, I just got a lot I gotta do. I must attend to some personal matters. And honestly, I'm not too sure the next direction I want to take with this podcast. I uh, tried to sway away from the Middle Ages. And every time I try, uh, no matter what I read or do, I always find myself back in medieval times. And, you know, I think that's just where I meant to be. So uh, therefore, finding history might be a little bit too big vague, vague, okay, vague of a title, uh, I think my original intention with choosing that title was to discuss all history subjects, but, you know, my goodness, there are a lot. Sometimes it's best to just have a main focus or timeline and kind of just go from there. Some possible contenders for names are the queer medievalist finding medieval history, haha, Generation M for medieval, but <laughs> I don't really like that one. I don't know. I just threw that out there. Um, but I don't know. I just know that my focus will be medieval. And I would kind of like to filter out. Um, it would be nice if I could find a way to filter out people who are drawn to the Middle Ages because they think it's like a white utopia. Because it absolutely wasn't. But for whatever reason... <laughs> there's a lot of people that think that's true. Uh, so that's why I was like, maybe I throw queer in my title, but we'll see. When I know, I will let you know, and I will definitely announce something on my social media when I return. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support of my podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Until we meet again, Happy New Year, stay safe, Stay informed, and in the words of Bell Hooks, who was taken from us this year, Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. Take care.